The following lesson is provided by Biblical Training. The speaker is Dr. Bill Mounts. More information is available at www.biblicaltraining.org. Father, your desire is that we all be fishers of men, that we all invite people to walk with us in this journey, this wonderful journey of life, a journey of life that's down a narrow road and through a narrow gate, we understand, and few are those who enter therein. But, oh, Father, thank you that you work through your children. Thank you that with all the different ways you could have done it, that you chose to work through us for us to enjoy the process, to see your magnificent power at work as people are taken from the pit of hell and set on the road to heaven. May we be a part of that journey, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus calls people to follow me. He calls people to walk with him. We are followers. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And so to those first disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But part of fishing for people is to invite them to fish for more people. All disciples are to fish. All disciples are to encourage others to walk with them. In the final words of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives what is called his great commission, a commission that is true for all disciples. In Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command for all disciples, the invitation for all disciples, is that we make more disciples, that we be involved in evangelizing and baptizing them but that we also be involved in people becoming fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching them to observe absolutely everything that Jesus has taught. Paul uses different metaphors. He talks about the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ. He tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 19. He says that in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God has entrusted to us the amazing gospel that there is a way to be friends with God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us so Paul says, let me make that appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, 
God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. All disciples are invited to invite others to walk with them, to walk with Jesus. All disciples are to be self-replicating. Or to say it differently, Christians are in the business of cloning. This should be the most natural thing in our lives. And what I want to do this morning is just to walk through this process with you. To show you that this isn't frightening, this isn't scary, this isn't someone who's got an MDiv or some other degree. This is simply for disciples. It's an absolutely natural process. And that process began at conversion, didn't it? Because in conversion, God changed me. That's the doctrine of regeneration. And changed people live changed lives. We've talked about this. That things can't continue as they were before. That you and I have been given a new birth. You and I have been given a new life. We have been made into new creatures. We are part of a new creation. Our lives must be different. Changed people simply live in a changed way. And then as you and I start to live out that changed life, people are going to start to notice. In Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 14, Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, in order that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We do truly live in a crooked and in a twisted, in a perverse generation. And yet as you and I live out our lives, we are going to live it out as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life. And people are going to start to notice that there's something different about you. There's something different about me. Jesus uses other metaphors to make this point. One of them is that you and I are the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 14, Jesus writes, You are the light of the world. Then he builds a couple of images to help us understand it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You take a city, you turn its lights on, you stick it up on top of a hill, you're going to see it, right? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. What's the point of lighting a light and then hiding it, right? You're not going to light a light and then stick it under something. But the whole point of lighting a light is so that it will illuminate the room. And then in verse 16, Jesus drives the point home. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You and I are the city on the hill. We are the light that has been lit in order to illuminate the room. And as you and I live out this kind of life, we're different. And people will see it. People will notice that there's something different. 
In the preceding verse, in Matthew 5.13, Jesus uses a different metaphor, that of the salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now we know that salt technically cannot lose its taste. What Jesus actually is talking about is salt being defiled. That means you can dilute salt with other substances, and so it loses its ability to preserve. And the point that Jesus is making is that Christians don't live in isolation from the world. He's just finished the Beatitudes, and they're so strong that there might be this temptation to think that, well, I need to live separate from the world. And Jesus says, no, no, Christians don't live in isolation from the world. Just as salt was used to preserve meat, so also Jesus, quoting one commentator, calls his disciples to arrest corruption and prevent moral decay in their world. That's our function of of being salt of the earth. Just as salt can become mixed with various impure substances and therefore become worthless as a preservative, so also Christians can mix themselves with the things of the world and become worthless as agents of change and redemption. You and I are the salt of the earth. We are agents of change and redemption. We are here to arrest corruption, to prevent moral decay, just as salt keeps meat from going bad. See, this is the kind of changed life that changed people live. And as you and I live as salt of the earth, as you and I live as light of the world, people will notice that we're different. I really like the King James translation of Titus 2.14. It uses an English word in the way we don't any longer. But it says that Jesus, quote, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, four or five hundred years ago in English, the word peculiar meant special. What Jesus was doing was purifying for himself a people who are special to him, who are his people. But I often think of us as a rather odd lot of people. You and I, to the eyes of the world, are just a little peculiar. And that's okay. That, in fact, is the way it must be. We're living changed lives, and people are supposed to notice that your life and mine are different. And then as people start to notice that you and I are a tad peculiar, they're going to start asking the question, what different. What what is it that makes these people different? There's a quotation that is variously attributed. Some people say Martin Luther said it. Some people said St. Francis of Assisi said it. I don't know, but it's a great quote. It says, preach at all times. If necessary, use words. (laughs) Preach at all times. If necessary, use words. You see, our lives preach louder. And our deeds proclaim truer than any word could ever say. 
And so people see our changed lives and they start to wonder what's different about them. One of the more powerful examples of this in Scripture is Peter's instructions to wives. And these are wives specifically who are married to non-Christians. And in 1 Peter 3 verse 1 he says, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they don't respond to the spoken gospel message, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and your pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The way to win your husbands to the Lord, Peter tells these wives, is not to preach at them. It's not to put all your emphasis on the externals of your beauty, but to rather focus on the internal beauty of a woman of God, someone who is gentle Someone who by the very way they live their lives will speak volumes. As you and I live out our changed Christian lives, as people start to notice and they start to wonder, what's so different about them? Eventually, what's going to happen is that they will respond to the witness of your life and mine one of two ways. This is a great verse. It's in 2 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 14. Paul uses a powerful image of smell to make his point that there are two ways that people are going to respond to the witness of your life. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. There's your changed life. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. As we smell differently to different people. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. As you and I live out our changed lives, to some people we are going to be the aroma of life. This is again what Jesus was talking about back in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To some we will be the aroma of life. But to others we will be the stench of of death, the stench of their death. In 1 Peter 4, verses 3 to 5, he writes, The time that is past, in other words, the time before your conversion, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, and the they referred to your past non-Christian friends, with respect to all this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
See, to some, we will be the aroma of life, and to others, we will be the stench of death. They will see our changed life, and they will not understand, and they will malign you. But the key in this whole natural process of living out our lives as followers of Jesus is that if you and I smell like the aroma of life, they will ask you why. They will come to you and they will come to me and they will say, why do you smell so good? They probably won't use that metaphor, but that's what they're asking. Why do you smell so good? Paul tells the Colossian church in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, Paul is saying is as you live out your life, your different life, your speech will be gracious. It won't be cutting and condemning and judgmental and critical. It is going to be gracious. And they are going to want to know, why, do you, why are you so gracious? And you need to know how you ought to answer each of these people. And the question simply is, are you and I ready to tell them why we smell so good. Again, in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, people look at us and they should see that, that you and I have a hope that they don't have. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. What we're talking about is the whole issue of what in the church has historically been called having a personal testimony. Being able to tell the story, to sharing your story. I'm not talking about how you would share your faith with someone who didn't, doesn't know you, that you would run onto on the bus or something. And while that's important, what I'm talking about is what is your testimony that you can share with the people that you know when they see that your life is different, when they see that you have a gracious speech, that you have a hope that they don't have, how are you going to tell them, how am I going to tell them why we have this hope and why our speech is so gracious? This is, again, the issue of friendship evangelism. There's some powerful images, some powerful stories in the Bible, aren't there, about personal testimonies. They can be phenomenally powerful. I think one of the most powerful is in the story of John 9, where Jesus heals the man who had been born blind. And the whole chapter 9 is about this story. And the religious leaders are all bent out of shape. They're not willing to say that Jesus was the one who gave him sight. And so they go through this foolish, repetitive set of uh, questions. And they get uh, his parents in and ask him, and then finally in verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. By that they mean that Jesus doesn't follow all their religious rituals and so he's a sinner. He can't possibly have healed you. And then in John 9, 25, the blind man answered, whether he is a sinner 
I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's really hard to argue against that. (laughs) Once I was blind, once I was dead in my sin, unable to see God, to see what was right, to see what was righteousness, I was dead and had no hope, but now I can't see. Powerful personal testimony. You just simply have to write the person off as a complete cuckoo case. Can I say that? Okay. You just Well, they did. They kicked him out of the temple and wanted nothing to do with him. They thought there was something seriously wrong with him. Another good testimony is in Acts chapter 4 where the young church has been witnessing to the risen Jesus and the religious leaders are unhappy. Gee, what a shock. Chapter 4, they, they bring him, they bring Peter and James in to defend themselves. And in, starting in verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, I really don't care what you think. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. The power of personal testimony. You and I both need to be prepared to have a personal testimony. And let me just give you some practical tips along this line. The first is the well-known acronym of KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Our personal testimonies don't have to be complicated. They don't have to be this long, drawn-out, well-crafted, logical treatise. Because that's not what saved you, and it's not what's going to save anyone else. But keep it simple. Share with them what your life was like before you became a follower of Jesus. And if you do this, my encouragement to you is keep this minimal. I've heard some personal testimonies that were 90% what a rotten jerk I was. And it's like they're glorying in their past sin. Tell people what your life was like before Christ, but don't glory in it. Keep it to a minimum. Tell them why you decided to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you may even want to relay the details of your conversion experience. And then share with them the difference that has made in your life. I once was blind, but now I see. Keeping it simple. And you know, and this personal testimony is something that you can prepare beforehand. It's something that you can practice. I would encourage you to practice it. Find ways to communicate the truth of your life to people uh, within three to five minutes, perhaps. But keep it simple. Secondly, please understand that your personal testimony is only the first step. If somebody comes up to you and says, you smell so good. You have the smell of life about you. Your uh, speech is seasoned, it's gracious. If you simply tell them why and stop, you haven't finished, have you? But you must go to the next step of inviting them to walk with you. Because you and I are all fishermen, right? 
And you must be prepared, I must be prepared, having told our testimony and perhaps woven into our testimony the very plan of salvation so that you can share with them how they too can be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's many methods out there for sharing salvation. I tend to use the ABCs a lot, as I'm sure you have noticed. What does it take to be a Christian? It means to A, admit that you're a sinner, you're separated from God. Acknowledge that his evaluation of you is right. B, believe in your heart that Jesus is God, that he is Savior, that he is Lord, that he is who he says he is. To believe that he did what he said he was going to do. That he said he was going to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. And then C, to commit your life to him. He's not only our Savior, he is also our Lord. There, I did it in about, what, 50 seconds. Uh, the ABCs of salvation. Perhaps you want to get used to using John 3.16 as I did in this first talk in this series. To find a way to say, God loved the world. He created the world, but it was separated from him by sin. And yet he still loved it. He loved it so much that he gave his only son. Jesus is the only sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the only way that this alienated world can ever be reconciled to its creator again. That whoever believes in him, it's not simply enough to have intellectual assent, but you must commit your life in belief to him. And if you do that, you will not perish, but you will live forever. You will live a new kind of life, an eternal kind of life that doesn't start when you die, it starts right now. John says we've already passed from death into life. Perhaps you would want to use John 3.16 as a way to share. Perhaps you would want to use those three famous verses in Romans. And actually, a lot of people like to carry a small Bible with them and have these three verses underlined. They've memorized them so they can turn and actually have the other person read the verses. Read Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has missed the mark. Every one of us has failed to do what our Creator has called us to do. Turn to Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for living separated from a holy God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way to get to heaven, the only way to have our sins forgiven is through the work of Jesus Christ. And it's a free gift. There's nothing that you can do. No religion, no amount of good activity can earn your way to heaven. It is a free gift of God. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. There's your assurance that God has committed that if we confess that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done what he has said he was going to do, then you shall be saved. Again, three probably most famous verses in the entire book of Romans that contain the whole plan of salvation that you can share with someone in two minutes. It's always helpful for non-propositional people to have illustrations. I'm a propositional person. I don't think in terms of metaphors. Some of you are helping me to learn to think metaphorically. The most common illustration is that there's this great chasm 
the Grand Canyon and you and your sin are over here and God and his forgiveness is over here and the chasm is so great that there's nothing that you can do to get over to him. And so the cross comes down and it fills the chasm through the work of the only Son of God who then invites us across to live in the full presence of God the Father forever. Illustrations are good and they're powerful and you can mix and match these things. But you must be prepared as you share your personal testimony to move beyond your testimony and to become a fisher of men and say, you too can have this hope that I have. Here's how you can do it. It's as simple as ABC. Practical advice, I would also say, be sure to keep your focus on Jesus. It's so easy to become distracted. The issue isn't being religious, the issue isn't good deeds, the issue isn't being able to answer their intellectual questions. Very few people actually have intellectual questions. People's problem with God is moral, not intellectual. And your story isn't really the issue either, is it? The issue is Jesus. And so we must stay focused on who Jesus is, that he is God, that he is Savior, that he is Lord. We must stay focused on what Jesus has done, that he has died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. But as you do, as you develop your personal testimony, as you learn to share the gospel, make sure, please, the focus isn't on you. Make sure the focus stays where it belongs on Jesus. And fourthly, as you try to put this whole issue of personal testimony into action, please don't accept too much responsibility. One of the reasons I think that people get frightened, I get frightened, you probably get frightened too, is that we tend to assume too much responsibility in this whole process. Do you know why some people think you smell so good? Do you know why you are an aroma of life to some of your friends who are watching your action? I mean, you, you look at your friends, you go, I'm me, these people don't like me, these people are drawn to me. What's the difference? Why are these drawn to me? Is it because you have a powerful story or compelling arguments? No, that's not what's going on at all. Jesus says in John 6, 44, that no one can come to the Father unless he draws them. The point is that God is at work in the lives of these people, and he's drawing people to himself. And so when someone looks at you and says, you smell good, it's because, not because of you. It's because God is at work in their life, and he's drawing people to himself. John 6, 44. Now, there's balance in all these things, isn't there? I'm not saying that you and I should be totally passive. I don't think that there's a time really, well, there may be a time, but not normally there's a time where you've shared your story and you leave it, you know, okay, well, I wonder if they're going to ask me to tell them how to be saved. There certainly is a time when you have to take the initiative and you can say, here's, would you like to have the same hope that I have? Would you like to have the same power at work in you that is at work in me? And you don't want to push. There's a balance to all this. But certainly there's a time in which we can ask them the question. 
But there also will be times in which it's obvious that they want to know themselves. Don't become the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sin, John 16, 8. It's not your job or mine. And as you are sharing your life with people, if they're turned off, there is nothing that you can do about that. Because they're dead in their trespasses and sin, and only God can quicken, can enliven their spirits. So don't accept responsibility that's only God's. Paul Little writes, It is the Holy Spirit, not we, who converts an individual. We, the privileged ambassadors of Jesus Christ, can communicate a verbal message. We can demonstrate through our personality and life what the grace of Jesus Christ can accomplish. But let us never naively think that we have converted a soul and brought him to Jesus Christ. No one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you and I share, then we have never failed. We only fail when we don't share. But when we do share, we've done our part. It is not your job and mine to convict people of their sin. It's not your job and mine to save them. It is not our job to convert them. And if they reject you, what does Jesus say? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And if they reject Jesus, then they're rejecting the one who sent Jesus. So when they reject you, they're not rejecting you. And in fact, Jesus says very clearly that when they reject you, you're blessed. Matthew 5, right after the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You never fail. I never fail if we share. The rest is really up to God, isn't it? The fact of the matter is Christians are the greatest cloners of all time, bar none. We were changed in conversion and changed people live changed lives. To some we stink. That's fine. To some we smell wonderful. We are to be prepared to tell them why. And then as we tell them why, we must ask the most fundamental question, would you like to join this journey of real life with me? Would you like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the child of God? Let me tell you how. And then let God be God and do what only God can do, and that is give life to the dead. Most natural thing in the world for a Christian. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that we would be changed. No, that's not right. We are changed. We are fundamentally altered. Father, may that change pervade our lives. And when we stink to people, may we not take it personally. It's not fine because it means they're going to hell, but there's nothing I can do about that. But, oh, Father, when we smell like the aroma of life to others, 
May we share with them why we are different. And may we invite them to walk with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this lesson brought to you by biblicaltraining.org. Feel free to make copies of this lecture to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.biblicaltraining.org. There you will find the finest in evangelical teaching for use in the home and the church, and it is absolutely free. Our curriculum includes classes for new believers, lay education classes, and seminary-level classes taught by some of the finest seminary teachers drawn from a wide range of evangelical traditions. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 28428, Spokane, Washington, 99228, USA.